If you want to turn back with me to Romans chapter 2. We're sort of moving on here a little bit. Romans chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. The word of the Lord. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Father, we have read many things this morning. We have sang wonderful truths, and we pray now that as we look into this text that you would give us grace and eyes to see and ears to hear that you would use the message of the gospel to give us understanding for those who have never trusted Christ, that they will be awakened to life and belief and faith in him. And those of us who have, that we will be more able to rest in the grace and the faith that we've been given. Call us to action, the actions that we need to take if we've been redeemed and we need to be baptized and follow your word in obedience. I pray you give us strength and faith to do that. If we just need faith to live every day according to what we know is true, we pray that by the message of your word and by the spirit of God that we'll be encouraged to do so. We thank you and love you for all that you've done and just for who you are. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. We enter a new section today in our study of Romans. This section actually runs from 2.1 that we began reading in all the way to 3.20. But that was a lot to try to read and to try to exegete, certainly in one uh, meeting. And actually, there's about three paragraphs along the way from 2.1 to 3.20 that sort of address the same subject in a different way. But this section begins right here with the word therefore or wherefore tying it to the previous section that we looked at the last time we were together a couple of weeks ago, which was chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, in which an argument was being made that the wrath of God is revealed in the gospel. That glorious gospel of God's righteousness, which revealed his son Jesus and revealed the power of God into salvation, 
that begins with faith and ends with faith for the Jew and the Gentile, for every kind of human. The good news for humanity was revealed in God's gospel, but the reason it was good news was also revealed because it revealed the bad news. The gospel reveals that there's a need for good news. It shows us good news, but it shows us also that there was a universal condemnation of all humanity. All have sinned, we'll read when we get to chapter 3, and fallen short of the glory of God. So God's goodness and righteousness was revealed, and how that goodness and righteousness is conferred upon man, which is through faith, because man can never earn it or deserve it or get to it because men are ungodly, was revealed, but also the unrighteousness of man was revealed in the gospel and the fact that in their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. And the truth that they suppress is about God. As Paul said there in chapter 1, men know that God exists because of natural revelation. He has revealed himself ever since the creation of the world, yet humans deny him. And practice all sorts of vile sin, even things which are against nature. And they know what they practice deserves death, Paul said. They not only practice such things, but they give approval to others who practice them. Isn't that amazing? They know that what they do deserves death, yet they practice it. And encourage others to practice it. We know this to be true. Natural revelation in this point in Romans 1 is true because there are unchristianized cultures in various places on the globe that have never had a Bible in their language. They've never been exposed to the gospel and the law of God, yet some of these very things that Paul names in chapter 1 of Romans, those cultures have a death sentence for people who practice those things. The fact that God has written on the hearts of men what is right and wrong is proven over and over in natural revelation. There are some things that even without a Christian influence, people just look at those things and say, that's not good. That deserves punishment. That deserves wrath. But as mentioned in verse 16, the good news of the gospel has been revealed first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, just a reference to God's choosing the Jews for the law and the prophet. He chose them among all the peoples of the world to bring the Messiah to the world. But it was a way of demonstrating also that this good news was for every kind of human. Because to the Jewish people at this time, there was only two kind of humans, Jews and everybody else. But because every kind of human, including the Jewish people, are unrighteous, God has to reveal this truth. And so verses 18 through 32, there's a lot of discussion. Is he only talking about the, Jew, the Gentiles here? But for most people, they believe, no, this is every kind. The Jew and the Gentile is in mind here. They're all wicked. They all practice these kind of things. Some of all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile, God has given over to this sin. And they're just allowed to practice it over and over. 
until A, they either are brought to repentance and come out of it, or B, they live that way until they die and they're brought under the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And I'm not sure I pointed that out last week, but I do want to say that even when it says God gave them up to this, to practice whatever they wanted to do, he gave them over. That's not a sentence to eternal condemnation because some of the people do come out of that. Praise God, some people come out of that. There's a place in Corinthians where Paul says, a list similar to this, such were some of you, but now you've been redeemed. You've been brought out of that. So even if we see those who we feel like, wow, God has turned them over, look at the way they live, that's not hopeless. If you know people who it seems as though God has given them over, do not give up hope. As long as they're alive, there's a hope that God will redeem them. But the truth is, as this letter would have been read to the Jews who were in Rome, this letter to the Romans, they might have been hearing this list in chapter 1, this first part of Paul's letter, this list of unrighteousness and ungodliness, and they would have been in agreement. That, yeah, this is exactly the way the Gentiles are. They would have probably been cheering the letter on. You tell them, Paul, that's exactly the way Gentiles and Greeks are. But I believe that he had in mind every bit of humanity, us included. And so our text today picks up to demonstrate this fact, and this is what he'll do all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. He really focuses on the Jewish people so they understand, hey, this gospel's for you too because you're under the same condemnation as the Greek. So he says, therefore you are guilty, O man, who judges. And this, we probably would all agree, this is the most heinous type of sin and unrighteousness, is it not? The hypocrite. It's one thing to look down your nose at somebody in their sin and think how horrible they are and how awful that sin is. It's somehow worse than your sin. But it's even another level to look down on somebody for a sin that you yourself are guilty of, right? None of us like that. We all feel like a hypocrite is just not a good thing. And now we can admit, too, that we're all guilty of being a hypocrite at times. But we certainly don't like that idea. But does that not sound like something Jesus would say to the Pharisees? In fact, he did. Remember in John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. We're not told how she was caught. It's an odd thing that these men bring this lady before Jesus. And they claim they had caught her in adultery. Her husband doesn't seem to be there accusing her of it. But she's there with these other men accusing her of it. And so Jesus does what? He looks at them right and says, Whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. And he begins writing in the sand. But if you read commentators on this passage especially those who know the languages. And the, some of the older writers, like Matthew Henry, they'll tell you that literally when Jesus says, he who is without sin, he in the la original language, he is saying, whoever is without the same sin, pick up a stone and throw it. Which is why everybody dropped what they were doing and left. The same thing. You're going to accuse this woman of adultery? All of you are adulterers. And really, if nothing else, 
you know, Jesus comes along and perhaps they had this time already heard him say, adultery is not just a physical outward thing. It's an issue of the heart and the mind. And so this kind of, this kind of unrighteousness is awful. It wasn't that the woman was undeserving of the sentence, but the men were not worthy to be the prosecutors. And so it is with us. And this, by the way, is the kind of judgment that we're not allowed to do. You know, the world loves to take these kind of passages and say, look at there, you're not to judge anything. Everything I do is not your business. You can't call out this sin and that sin. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible often does call us to be judgmental towards sin. We are to recognize sin, call it for what it is. But we are not people's ultimate judge. Whether they're in sin or not, or they are sinning these sins, even that Paul names here, it's not our responsibility to condemn them to, to hell. That's not our right and position and ability. And it's certainly not our place to treat them as some different kind of sinner and especially if we're guilty of the same thing. Isn't that what drives us most crazy about politicians often? They get up and accuse the one they're running against of doing the same thing they, we know they're guilty of doing. Or at least in a few weeks down the road, they'll be under the same scrutiny for telling the same. They're all, the, the, the hypocrisy of it all makes us insane. And so Paul says here, in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself. And we know, says Paul, we all know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Again, to the Jews, they knew this because they had the law and the prophets. They knew that God judges sin. And really, all of humanity does, again, because of natural revelation. These cultures that I mentioned earlier, they'll purge these kind of sinful, this kind of sinfulness out of their communities because they know it can be a cancerous thing that grows. So they want it gone. And I feel like they know, even though they might not could mouth it, that God passes judgment on sin. And so he goes on to say, do you think you will escape judgment when you're practicing the same thing as, though, as those without the law practice? And he's going to get into this more in our next section. He really brings this down. You Jewish people, my people, you Hebrews, you look on the Gentile who does not have the law, does not have the prophets, and you see them practicing a sin that you yourself practice, and you do know that it's wrong. You do know that it's going to be judged. How dare you hold these people in a higher standard than you're holding yourself? And then he moves to another argument. Do you just presume on the riches of God's kindness and the forbearance and patience of God? Those are the very things meant to bring you to repentance. And yet you're taking advantage of them. How horrible of a thing is it that man in his unrighteous, depraved self will take the character of God's kindness and long-suffering and patience as a green light to just continue to sin and refuse to repent. But that's the best we got to offer. 
if we could somehow make an analogy to this within humanity, they would all fall short. But I thought, you know, if, if, if a man is caught stealing from his friend, red-handed, and stole what, uh, sold what he stole, and his friend could have him arrested and put into prison, but rather he gives him an allotted amount of time to pay back what he stole. Just pay it back, and I won't have you arrested. I won't press any charges. And during that allotted time, rather than working to pay back his friend, he comes back and steals more stuff from him. It's about the best I could come up with. But God is long-suffering. And, and again, we'll see in Romans chapter 3, he's been long-suffering, impatient, not willing. Until the Son came, until the Messiah came, he's been passing over sin, so to speak, in forbearance, not bringing judgment And Paul is arguing in a much worse way, men are taking advantage of God's patience and forbearance. God has not destroyed the world because of sin. And rather than that bringing us to repentance, it causes more sin. Not realizing that these practices of God, these Acts of kindness are meant to bring us to repentance. Not give us more time to fit in more sin and unrighteousness. But again, that's the best that men can do. This is simply further evidence of man and his rebellion because of the fall. His inability to make moral decisions about his salvation. He's free to do so, but he's in bondage to his sinful desires. He will only further his condemnation. You know, people that preach the doctrines of grace, we get accused all the time. Well, you, you don't believe men have a will. You just think they're robots. No, men have a will. And they are free to choose the gospel at any time. Naturally, they are free to choose. Morally, they are in bondage to the fall and to sin and unrighteousness. They can't. Because what does the Bible say? They're dead. Why else would men look and know that God punishes these kinds of things, know that this kind of thing will bring justice that will not be a good thing because God will always be just. He will always judge sin correctly and rightly. And he's given you time to do what's right, but yet you just continue to do what's wrong because you can't do the opposite. You're dead. But then God in his grace awakens you and regenerates you and brings you to life. And suddenly you recognize the kindness of God has given me a chance to repent. And repent is not just turn away from your sin, right? Repentance is a change of mind. It means now I stop thinking about God the way I used to. I'm going to start thinking about God in a different way. I'm going to start thinking about my sin in a different way. This is a sin not against people. This is a sin not just against my own body. This is a sin against God. And we begin through repentance, our minds begin to be changed. And look, our actions won't ever be changed until our minds are changed. This is why we preach the way we do. We preach the gospel in its purity and want God to awaken you and raise you from the dead and give you life and bring new life to you and regeneration for you to be born again. Then your mind will change toward God and then your actions can change. That's the problem with preaching a works-based salvation. You want people to do something they're not capable of doing. 
You have no ability to do the things of God. And we're about to see that demonstrated more in this text. Until you've been regenerated to life. You will not escape judgment. And again, especially the Jews, Paul is saying, because you've been given particular blessing from God, and I think that's his argument, and we'll see it more later in, in this chapter and into the next chapter, you have the blessings of the law and the prophets, but these blessings are not giving you a license and a free pass. Man, we think a lot like that sometimes, don't we? And a lot of us in our lost conditions, and some people even still without Christ, they think that they're going to be okay. I mean, my parents are good. I've always been to church. i got plenty of time. I have people say that to me sometimes as a chaplain. Well, I'm not ready for that yet. I, literally, one guy said, when, whenever it's closer, like I'm almost about to die, then I'd like for you to come. I'm not able to see that. You know, I don't know when that's going to happen. I mean, are you sure you want to wait till then? I mean, not that I have some magical powers to confer anything onto people. But if you're concerned spiritually, I wouldn't wait till then. But people do. We, we, we're, we're just like they were then. Presuming upon the, the kindness and the patience and the forbearance of God. These blessings that God has given to us, and we can say this in our country, it's the same truth. The blessings ought to make the gospel more appealing to us. We've been inundated with Christianity and Bibles everywhere and preachers on TV and years of blessings and peace. I'm in no way saying that Israel is the same as America or any of that craziness, but the truth is we have been blessed. We have, been, we have experienced great peace and blessing for the most part. But just... Turn on the TV and see some of the things that people protest. Some of the things that, the ways that people shake their fists in the face of God. But notice verse 5, you're storing up wrath. This wrath which has been revealed in the gospel, the wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, you're building up a storehouse of destruction and judgment's coming. Because the kindness and the patience and the forbearance of God, it will come to an end. And judgment will fall like rain. The prophets, many like Joel, referred to this day that was coming as the great and terrible day of the Lord. Because he will bring judgment. It is a righteous judgment. It will be exact and the only means of escape is Jesus. The only means of escape is the works that God has worked and wrought on our behalf. Notice verse 6. He, God, will render to each one according to his works. That's not good news. Okay, a lot of times people will take Romans chapter 2 and try to build a, a, a theology of a works-based here, look, here, Romans chapter 2 teaches us that we can do stuff and God won't reward it. This is not good news. God's going to render to each one according to his works. I will say this. Salvation is works-based. I know you've heard me say this before. But not the way many believe. Salvation is works-based. 
because God will render to each one accordingly. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give them eternal life. So here's the thing to remember. If you think this is good news and all you have to do to get eternal life is to practice verse 7, then I have to ask you this. Have you done that perfectly for your entire life? To be righteous according to works, you have to never fail. The law only knows two things, perfection and condemnation. You either keep the law perfectly, or if you fail at one point, you failed the whole thing and you're a lawbreaker. And what are you doing? Everything from that point on, you're just storing up wrath. That's one day going to be poured out upon you. So salvation is works-based, but if your works, if it's your works you're banking on, every time you fail, you'll just store up more wrath. How can the few times you do get it right empty the storehouse of, storehouse of the wrath of God? I mean, is anybody willing to suggest that this is, the, this is what I do every day? I practice well-doing and honor and glory. If you continue reading... Verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew and the Greek, again, every human of every kind. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, for every human. For God doesn't show partiality. The good news here is to be found in the fact that God gives eternal life to those who practice doing well. But the bad news here is that God gives eternal life to those who practice doing well. And that's none of us. We may on occasion do it, but I would say it doesn't describe any of us 100% of the time. Is there anybody here willing and ready to stand before Almighty God at judgment and offer him the times in your life when you've done well and good and practice righteousness and sought immortality? That doesn't describe me. Because like me, you probably fit this description better, self-seeking, not obeying the truth, but obeying unrighteousness, Right? That's me, if I'm honest, and for that, the Bible says there will be wrath and fury and tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, for every kind of human, Jew and Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and the Greek, because God shows no partiality. So again, I say to all humans everywhere, salvation is by works, but thanks be to God, it's not according to our works. Our best efforts, according to Paul here, earn nothing but tribulation and distress and wrath. But the good news from chapter 1, remember, the gospel of God's righteousness has been revealed in Christ Jesus from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. Our hope is in a works-based salvation, but it's the works of Christ and him alone. He has done every work perfectly. 
He has always sought the glory and honor of the Father. He has always sought well-being and well-doing. He's always done good and perfect. He never broke the law of God. He always kept it. He never sinned. So beginning with faith and ending with faith, remember, the just shall live by faith. Our hope is in the work of Christ. Christ patiently practiced well-doing and sought glory for the Father and honor and immortality, and he did so perfectly. All who trust in his work will receive eternal life. So that doesn't seem like good news right there because it's not. But there is good news because what he is teaching is the reason that the good news had to come. Because we would have never received Christ, believed in him, which is the same as receiving him, is believing in him. Because we would continue to trust in our own goodness. Or we would just continue to put off doing good and take advantage of the kindness of God and his forbearance. Thinking, well, he's not done it yet. He, he'll never, he won't, I'll keep getting away with it, right? Those times as a child when you knew your parents had told you to do something, but you didn't do it, and it seems like they didn't notice. Well, I won't do it again. I won't do it again. And then finally the wrath comes down, right? Because you knew to do this, and you didn't do it. You thought you were getting away with it, but you weren't. In a much worse, more serious way, people put off, put off, the righteousness of God and the kindness of God and continue to sin thinking there's more time and God will just continue to be forbearing and patient but the scriptures are clear one day all that's going to be over and judgment will come so the good news for us church is that our hope is not in doing well we ought to turn from these things these things that in that list in chapter 1, this shouldn't characterize our lives. Not that we don't do these things from time to time or think on these things from time to time. Struggle with sin, we do. But the characteristic, the character of our life should be when we sin, God gives repentance and we change our mind and we go back to living the way that God's called us to according to his word and by his spirit. And it's a constant thing. But if you've never trusted Christ, hear me, the only hope you have is to stand before him one day and offer him what you've been doing good. That's not, that's not hopeful. It's a frightening thing. Father, we praise you for your word and the truth of it. I know it. sometimes it's harsh and it cuts, but we need to hear this. Both those who are not saved to be awakened to life and to believe. Awakened, awakened to faith in Christ is the only way to God. And those of us who have been awakened and who are redeemed, that will be reminded every time we're sucked in by the world or we're tricked in to doing things or thinking certain ways that are contrary to godliness, that you give us repentance and you put us back on a straight path and you keep us in love with you and you teach us your ways and you continue to grow us and we praise you for that. I thank you that you've never left your people behind. You've always left whatever needed to be left to go find that one. You always bring us to yourself and you always 
restore us, and we're so thankful for that. And we're encouraged as we hear the gospel because we know that we didn't do anything to earn it or get it. You came and got us. You came because of the works of Christ and redeemed us. And that's been put in our account, and we are so thankful. And we celebrate that. As we take the supper, we acknowledge that the body and the blood of Christ is what we have to believe in. And just as we'll take this into our bodies, we have been immersed in the faith of, uh, that Christ is our Savior. So we celebrate that together in Jesus' name. Amen.